This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are in the midst of Season 7. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I teach at Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he is the Duns Scotus Chair of Spirituality at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago and a columnist at National Catholic Reporter. I'm also here with Heidi Schlumpf, who is the executive editor of National Catholic Reporter, and for many years was a reporter at National Catholic Reporter before that. It's a lot of reporters. Heidi and Dan, it's good to see you. How are you all? Good morning. So great to be back for a second episode. I wanted to report that I got some great feedback from joining the podcast last week, and I'm really excited to chat again this week. Same here. I've heard nothing but good things. David, Heidi, good to be with you as always. And, you know, shout out to our listeners. There was a lot of love for season seven's launch and a special tremendous amount of love for Heidi joining the team. So this is a delight. Yeah, things are are pretty crazy here. I think they are for you as well. And I know they are for Heidi as well. Uh, It's that time of year. School is well underway in the pandemic and life is just moving at a clip. I mean, what's your experiences these days? Well, so like you said, we're trying to figure out ways to exercise and the four of us in, in our house trying not to go stir crazy. The kids, I think I've mentioned before, are being homeschooled this year. And so on top of everything else, every week we're trying to figure out lesson plans for them and trying to figure out ways to make sure that they don't go crazy and don't fall behind and that we all manage to get the work done that we need to get done. And I produce several radio shows and other types of podcasts on top of that. So it's a very busy time in the Dalt household. Heidi, how are you doing? We're doing great here and we've got the same thing going on, not homeschooling, but virtual schooling at home. So my two kids are just started school last week and they're diving right into being on a computer all day with their lessons. But so far, so good. And the adults in the in the family are hanging in there, too. We're also trying to get some exercise as the days get cooler here in Chicago. I go for daily walks and listen to podcasts. And the whole family took a dip in our swimming pool last night for the last time. It's going to come down. Oh, wow. That's a it's the end of an era. It's end been, of summer. It's been well used, though, I imagine, in this pandemic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of staycation. <laughs> <laughs> and so this was the swimming pool that you built in your backyard, and, and it was above ground. So when you say take it down, you're not like ripping a swimming pool out of the ground. You're just folding up the tent, as it were. 
Yeah, it looks like it's not going to be as fun to take it down as it was to put it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also been a crazy week in the world of news and Catholicism. One of the things that struck us as we were preparing for the show today was how many things there were to talk about, and it was hard to pare them down to just three. But today we're going to be talking about three main topics. We're going to be looking at the settlement in the Brianna Taylor case. We're going to be looking at some issues around a controversial baptism, and we'll be looking at some of the directions that bishops in Wisconsin have been giving to their parishioners. And all of those things are worth diving into, and they have not only Catholic implications, but also political implications and social implications. And so we're looking forward to diving into that. But before we do, is there anything on your personal radar that has been keeping you distracted over the last week? Well, for me, it's been a wonderful week since our podcast dropped episode one two weeks ago. I've given a number of talks, including some remote talks in Brisbane, Australia, with Archbishop Mark Coolridge of the Archdiocese of Brisbane. It was really nice to be back. I was there in person a year ago. It's hard to believe, last August. And so I'm very mindful because of those experiences, both the positive and the negative. The positive being connecting with folks virtually and what a gift that is because of technology. The negative being... the stark reminder of the reality that we're facing in terms of the pandemic, the lack of travel, the continued isolation, the devastation. And quite frankly, I'm also very mindful these days of the devastating ecological consequences of global climate change, which we see on the West Coast, you know, basically up and down the entire West Coast with wildfires. Uh, we see in the Gulf Coast right now, as we're recording this last week, with Hurricane Stacy, and this is only the second of what will be, I'm sure, more storms to come. And so, you know, my heart and mind is is uh, really tired in some ways of, of praying and thinking and trying to be in spiritual and other forms of solidarity with our sisters and brothers and all creatures in these places. It's a stark reminder of what we talked about in the last episode about the season of creation. This is a wild season of creation, if ever there were one. So that's kind of what's been on my mind, in addition to the day in and day out, you know, work of teaching and ministry and that kind of stuff. I mean, Heidi, what's going on over there? Well, it's been a busy couple weeks in the news business, especially on the political front. And at NCR, we've just had a number of things we've been covering. I think when this show drops, it will be the morning of the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast, which has been controversial because of an award that is being planned to be given to Attorney General William Barr, controversial because of his not very pro-life stance on the death penalty and a number of other issues. But it just seems like every day brings a new news story about our election and our political culture in the U.S. that's been really crazy to be covering. So I'm kind of grateful we're not talking about that this episode and looking at some some, uh, issues not directly related to the election. Well, and for me, I've had some students, because a lot of the classes that I teach at Loyola have remote components, and so teaching online means not just teaching Chicago students, but teaching students from literally all over the world. Several of my students have been physically displaced due to the fires out west, and I've been keeping them in prayer and in thought. It's, I mean, there's a lot that we will be saying, I'm sure, about the continued impact of these kind of environmental escalations as the season goes on. But I just, I'm just really heartbroken over the devastation that is happening again and again and again. And the fact that we're not taking a lot of action on a global or a systemic level, it seems more like the actions that we're taking are kind of individual actions here and there, and we need to be stepping it up 
to a great deal. On a much smaller scale, I want to also alert listeners that that we've found out, thanks to some listeners that have gone into our back catalog, that some of our episodes were not loading properly in the system that distributes our programs. And so we are working to fix that problem and slowly but surely it is getting fixed. And so if you've been wanting to hear a particular episode and it hasn't been working for you, keep trying because in the next few days it should be up and running. We're working hard to get that right. And thank you for your patience. (laughs) Well, with that, maybe we should take a little break and then get into our first topic, which is the issue of baptism. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. On August 6th, the Vatican's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith released a statement specifying that the use of first-person plural pronouns in the celebration of baptism, that is, saying, we baptize you in the name of the Father, and so on, is considered invalid. This clarification spurred a novel crisis in the Archdiocese of Detroit last month when Father Matthew Hood discovered that he was, according to the CDF statement, invalidly baptized three decades ago. Hood came to this realization after watching a home video of his baptism in which the celebrant, a parish deacon, used the plural pronoun, we. Hood spoke to the Archdiocese and papers, saying, quote, It was devastating for me to find that out, unquote. He added, It meant I wasn't baptized, and I hadn't received any of my other sacraments, First Communion, Confirmation, or Ordination to the Diaconate or the Priesthood. The reason rests in the understanding of sacramental theology, which states that, as Catholic News Service reported, quote, Only a baptized Catholic can validly receive the other sacraments, unquote. Within the course of a week, beginning on August 9th, Hood was baptized, confirmed, received the Eucharist, ordained a deacon, and then ordained a priest. But the saga continues as his apparently invalid baptism, and therefore presumed invalid ordination, raised questions about all the sacraments he had celebrated as a priest for the last three years. Dan, you're a priest. What are we to make of this? Is this a real problem or a matter of misplaced scrupulosity? Well, as my students would be very quick to point out, and I think I've shared many times on our podcast, one of my favorite German words is yein, yes and no. So my answer to both of those questions is, is a robust yes and no. I mean, I think we need to take a step back for a moment because a lot of readers of these various reports and NCR and CNS and the Associated Press and around the Detroit media and so forth were probably very perplexed. I mean, how is this guy not a priest? Some people were probably at his ordination in the archdiocese and they were there when he celebrated weddings and celebrated Eucharist on a daily and weekly basis and celebrated baptisms and during the Easter vigil celebrated confirmations. And so what are we to make of all of this is, is a fair question. And I think fundamentally it raises questions about what a sacrament is and how we understand what a sacrament does and how it works. So, you know, just to explain a little bit about why, you know, in your intro, you talk about this question about validity. I think a distinction has to be made first, as it is in the church, between what's called validity and lucidity, that valid means did it actually happen? Did it take place? Whereas licit means, is it something that perhaps was valid, but shouldn't have taken place? So it's an authorization. 
Well, I guess I would just add that on the day that we're taping this, I saw some news this morning that we have another example of this, a young priest in Oklahoma City who also has discovered that this incorrect use of the word we baptize instead of I baptize was used. And so Archbishop Paul Coakley there has quickly re-baptized and received all the other sacraments and also ordained this young priest. So what's interesting to me, there's so many issues that come up, including the theological, but just for the beginners, this is another way that technology is affecting our lives as Catholics. So if these two priests hadn't had videotapes of their baptisms that they could go back to and find out that, and I believe in both cases, it was a deacon, a permanent deacon who was performing these or doing these baptisms, had used this language, again, with the idea they were trying to incorporate the community into the sacrament in a way that was probably theologically incorrect, according to our church teaching. So, so interesting. And I'm wondering here, I don't want to make an assertion, if it's just a coincidence that these two younger priests in dioceses known for more traditionalist bishops just happened to go back to their baptism videos to find that they had been baptized using this incorrect formula, of course, after they had seen this new ruling from the CDF. And I guess I'm having trouble understanding why it's an incorrect formula. I love the idea that the church is a communal action and not a bunch of individuals. I like it when I hear we language instead of I language. I like it when I hear it in liturgy. I like it when I hear it in the creed. I really like the idea that the church is a collective enterprise. And so for me, hearing this, it seems like an almost unhealthy attachment to individualism. Am I, and I, I don't quite know what the logic of the CDF is here, and maybe... Well, the logic is clear theologically, but it goes back again to how you understand the sacraments, because the theological grounding for it is that the minister of baptism, which does not have to be a priest or a deacon, a valid baptism is performed by any other validly baptized Christian, provided they use flowing water and use the correct formula. And the I of the I baptizing in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, at least from the Roman Catholic perspective, is the standing in for Christ, because Christ baptizes, not me, not you, not Heidi, nobody else, no priest. Christ baptizes through the person, whether it's a nurse in NICU who's baptizing a a newly born but perhaps terminally ill baby, let's say she, when she says, I baptize in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, she's standing in for Christ in that sacrament. And it's a valid baptism provided she uses, even if it's a little droplet of water, flowing water as it's called for and that expression. Because it's not the church that baptizes, Christ baptizes. And the same thing's true with confession. When I, you know, as you said, I'm a priest, when I celebrate the sacrament of penance and I grant absolution, The prayer is, I absolve you, but it's not me who's forgiving the sins. Christ is. It's a stand-in. That is so helpful, and I wish the church had a way to make that more clear to people at the parish level, because this sounds like legalism a lot of times. This sounds like scrupulosity. Well, I would say um, Joshua McElwee, our Vatican correspondent, did a piece in NCR that looks precisely at that by talking to different theologians and theologians and 
coming up with the headline that's saying this is a controversy that isn't so controversial because there is near unanimity among sacramental theologians about this teaching about the I standing for Christ, and also that this has ecumenical concerns because other Protestant primarily churches also use that formula, although he did find there's the, in an Eastern, right, Catholics use a different formula that's the passive voice, which we as journalists don't like, so-and-so is baptized, um, without putting the subject of the sentence in there. So I think, yes, to a lot of everyday Catholics, this comes off as legalism and arguing about something that doesn't seem to be very important. As a, a writer, I think words do matter. And I I think there's some reason to pay attention to this. But I do have some concerns about this being a focus and people going back to their videos and this scaring of people then to think that their sacraments that they haven't received or that they have received from these priests then are not valid or licit. Maybe you can explain, Dan. Well, that's exactly right. And I'm on the same page with you, Heidi, because... Now we're moving beyond. So there's one thing to talk about theology. There's another thing to talk about practice and, and pastoral ministry. And, and and it's not that these things aren't interrelated. They they certainly are. But what does it mean to say that one little slip up, and I saw this on social media, people are saying, you know, so if somebody has, you know, maybe the deacon wasn't trying to make a statement or anything. He just slipped up and said, we by accident. Does that invalidate this whole person's sacramental experience or life in the church, and therefore, as an ordained minister in the church, the consequence is kind of, you know, cascading along hundreds and thousands of other people. This is where the controversy arises, because theologically, the CDF is not wrong, as you said, Heidi, and as Josh reported. But the question is, again, the notion of a sacrament, and the church has resources for this. It's written within even its law, the the Code of Canon Law. You know, Canon 144 has a, uh, includes a Latin phrase that gets used a lot, particularly by sacramental theologians, and for good reason. And the Latin phrase is ecclesia supplet, which means that the church supplies. If there is a doubt, if there's a question about whether or not something was 100% perfect in terms of validity in question or governance or authority in question, the presumption errs on the side of validity. We see this play out all the time. Again, perhaps the sacrament people are most familiar with, especially in in a lay audience, is marriage. And this is the presumption. This is why annulments can be so painful and difficult, because the presumption errs on the side of validity. I think that also needs to be the case with this baptism controversy. Because what does it mean to say, again, it's this notion of who is acting here. Are we to say that the deacon's slip of the tongue, let's give him the benefit of the doubt here, right? That he meant to say, I accidentally said we, right? One word. Are we to believe that the whole Holy Spirit somehow was like present until the deacon said we, and then God said, checked out, I'm out of here. This is not happening. You know, what kind of vision of the divine do we have? What kind of understanding of the church do we have? What kind of theology of the sacraments do we have? And this is where I think the last, you know, famously in the Code of Canon Law, the last canon, 1752, talks about the highest authority, the highest law of the church being the care and salvation of souls. In other words, it's a pastoral orientation, a pastoral intention. And my belief is this notion of ecclesia soplet really plays here, it seems almost farcical because now all of the people that this Father Matthew Hood in Detroit, you know, witnessed their marriage, baptized, celebrated, you know, do you mean that all these people for for three years were going to Mass and they never received the actual Blessed Sacrament? 
I don't believe that to be true because I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit and I believe in Christ. Well, this is the part that I really got confused about and wanted to ask about. Because if no one had gone back and watched the videotape, this wouldn't have been an issue. It, it seems to become an issue once there is the testimony of the videotape. So for me, that adds an entire other layer to this that is both fascinating and confounding. Like, because then you have the question of, are the sacraments kind of working, whether or not somebody watches the videotape? And I, I'd be interested in your take on that, Heidi, because I, I have no idea what to make of that. Well, I'm just wondering if we need to stay tuned for new rules and regulations that say sacraments can't be videotaped in the future because of of these many problems that it is raising. I mean, I do think it is worth pointing out, though, David, and you mentioned this earlier when you were talking about the importance of we and communal language to you in the Mass and in other areas. It's been painful for me, the change in the creed from we believe to I believe. We're suffering from an excess of individualism here in our culture right now that thinks we could use a little more we language. And I think it's worth noting that the only other time, or at least the the other recent time, we had a similar judgment from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith about this issue was back in 2008 under then Pope Benedict. And it was again regarding language that was being used in some baptisms instead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Some people were trying to use the gender neutral language of creator, liberator, sustainer. And there was a ruling again that that would then make the baptism invalid. So it does seem unfortunate or coincidental, maybe, that the the two times the CDF has ruled on these things, it's around theology that seems to try to be more inclusive. Well, and it's also, back to David's point, when you lamented you wish that more people understood these things, this is sort of like Josh's reporting about the current baptismal controversy in Detroit, which is that as a theologian, you know, we theologians are like, well, no, the CDF isn't wrong. And actually, the CDF under Benedict was not wrong either, precisely as you said, Heidi, for ecumenical reasons. The fact that we all agree in terms of one baptism, whether you're a Lutheran or a Methodist or an evangelical or a Catholic, we're all equally Christian by virtue of our baptism. So there's real real stakes on the line. The problem is, again, I don't, I don't think it's going to be possible to forbid video recordings of sacraments, especially in the age of live streaming. I mean, I celebrated the baptism of my friend's two kids in Iowa back in July. Again, masks on, socially distant, you know, all precautions were taken, but their families were zoomed in from other parts of the country. And what would we do? Have these kind of clandestine baptisms or like marriages where you don't have, you know, a videographer or no live streaming of of Eucharist? You know, forget about you know, EWTN's daily mass, that's gone, you know. So I see what you're saying, but I don't think that's the solution. Frankly, for me, I think part of it is David's point about catechesis. And it has to do with a pastoral bent instead of a a kind of a scrupulous, rigorous understanding of the law, which misunderstands both sacramental law, which is called particular law in the church, and canon law, which is the general governance of the church, they're both structured in an ideal setting. It's a Roman notion of jurisdiction that David and I have talked about previously before that is aspirational. It doesn't mean that it's an excuse to do whatever you want. It just means that it's not to be interpreted the way that common law societies like Great Britain or the United States oftentimes interpret law, which is exactly, it seems, how 
you know, fatherhood and the Bishop of Detroit and now in Oklahoma, how they're treating this. They're like, you know, it's, it's the same way a state trooper pulls you over. And if you're going 56 and a 55, you, that's it. There's no question, right? You get a ticket theoretically. In this case, it's the same thing. Well, you didn't say I, therefore it doesn't count. It's it, but that, seems again to negate it gets a i feel bad because i'm turning into to like a cliche of myself because i'm always talking about what i wrote about last year in ncr about holy spirit atheism i swear to god people do not believe in the holy spirit if we believe the spirit is the one who's operative here and christ is the one who baptizes then i think there's no problem and and i worry about these marathon sacramental parades over the course of a week as would happen with fatherhood where he's baptized or rebaptized or provisionally baptized, however you want to call it, and then reconfirmed or newly confirmed, you, you know, the whole series of things up through ordination in six days. That is really quite absurd, frankly. I mean, so I, I don't know exactly what the solution is. I, I don't think inherently there's anything wrong with the clarification from the CDF, but I think how it's received pastorally and how it's taught and used and so-called enforced I think that's where things have fallen apart. I think somewhere in eternity, Count Zinzendorf is looking at this conversation and chuckling a little bit. And unfortunately, although I'd love to keep talking about this all day, I think we need to we need to bring this to a close here. But I'm sure that we will have other issues like this to talk about on the show. But for right now, we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlump, and I'm here with David Dalt and Dan Horan. For over 20 years, Oprah Winfrey has appeared on the cover of every single issue of Oh! The Oprah Magazine. That changed this summer on July 30th, when the cover of the issue instead featured a portrait of a young woman named Breonna Taylor, along with the words, Her Life Matters. On March 13th of this year, Taylor was shot to death by police during a midnight raid on her apartment in Louisville, Kentucky. The raid was ostensibly to execute a search warrant for her ex-boyfriend on the suspicion he was involved in dealing drugs. Many facts are disputed in the case, but no drugs were found on the premises, and at least one of the officers involved is accused of firing 10 rounds blindly into the apartment. He has since been fired. Other officers involved have been reassigned to administrative duties. In the wake of the killing of Breonna Taylor, her name and cause have been taken up as part of the ongoing protests against police violence that have continued throughout the summer in cities across the nation. Just a few days ago, as we're taping this, the city of Louisville announced a $12 million settlement in the wrongful death lawsuit brought by the family of Breonna Taylor. The city has also pledged to undertake significant reforms of police practices as part of the settlement agreement. A special prosecutor has also been appointed to explore criminal charges against the officers involved, but as of this time, no action has been taken to issue indictments. We've reached a milestone moment in this very complex case. David, what should we be focusing on here? 
Well, I think what you said, Heidi, is important to keep in mind, and that is there are a lot of facts about the case that are still very much in dispute. There is an account that was given by the police department. There was an account given by the family. There was an account given by the the boyfriend, who is not the boyfriend in the warrant, but a different boyfriend who is saying that he fired a shot that night and wounded an officer, but did it thinking that he was acting in self-defense. And an important piece that makes all of this more complex is the fact that none of the police officers involved had their body cameras on. And so there are levels here that need to be thought about, but there's a lot that we can't say definitively. One thing that we can say is that whatever the practices were of the police department, it is right that one of the aspects of this judgment is that reform was necessary. Because from the standpoint of a person in their home, not knowing why their home is being broken into, in the middle of the night with no announcement given, at least as far as the boyfriend testifies. Uh, With all of that being the case, we have a kind of situation where the police are using power and the police are using force in a way that is wounding and killing people and not necessarily following the rules and the standards that on paper they have agreed to follow. Now, the other piece of this is that this has become part of a much larger national conversation about exactly these questions, the use of police force and the appropriateness of police violence and even killing by the hands of police in various situations. And so that's part of the larger context of what we're talking about here. Yeah, that's really important that the larger context sheds additional urgency on the matter. I think the case itself is is very interesting, and I want to recommend to our listeners, especially if you like podcasts like ours, if you don't already listen to the New York Times podcast, The Daily, on September 9th and 10th, they did a two-part series, so it adds up to about an hour of audio reporting, excellent reporting, about Breonna Taylor, about the situation, how things unfolded that night, and where things stand at this point. And it's really illuminating, in part because... In this larger conversation, we've seen whenever there is a person of color who has been uh, killed at the hands of authorities, particularly police forces, one of the defense mechanisms, either of the police department or by the general public or what have you, is to try to put on trial, as it were, to to sort of come up with a post-factum justification for that person's death. So you try to scrape up every sort of negative thing or mistake the person had made in their life, or if they had some kind of criminal record or something like that, all of a sudden that comes to surface and there's a re-narrating, a retelling of the person's life and of the events. Similar sorts of things are happening with Breonna Taylor, which is really dreadful, actually, I think really harmful, because at the end of the day, there are facts that speak to the the lament, Black Lives Matter, in an illustration of how here's a case in point of how Black Lives Don't Matter. Not only was Breonna Taylor not directly a party to anything criminal, and so there was a, a, a kind of failure of the justice system there in this raid. And again, I, I can't recommend highly enough the Times' reporting on this because they explain how events in the previous year had led to different policies in the Louisville Police Department that led to this, that in its best form is a debacle, and what we actually saw was a tragic murder. But there were also, the investigations have shown that she could have lived had they the police and the authorities handled this differently, the boyfriend called 911. You can listen. It's so painful to listen to that conversation with the operator and the operator not realizing that the police were the ones who shot her, you know, presumably. And so 
it's one of these things where, like Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, who was left, you know, deceased on the street for hours, you know, so disrespectfully to treat, you know, the body of a human person, a similar sort of thing could be understood to have taken place in the case of Breonna Taylor, where the urgency, the attention that's needed to preserve life, to care for others, seems to be totally absent. And so to me, there's no greater cry and response than Black Lives Matter as a stark indictment of the fact that, again, police over and over again are not acting, generally speaking, as if the lives of people of color in particular matter. And we saw that as well closer to home where I grew up in Rochester, New York, with the Daniel Prude case as, you know, horrifying. Well, I would just also say a, a lot of news focused on the amount of the settlement at $12 million being sort of a record amount of money in, in a settlement of this type for at least that city. And obviously, no amount of money can take the place of a loved one who's been killed. And so I do think it might be significant in that it is, at least in its amount, attributing some amount of value to the life of this person who was killed. The sad thing, and we know this in Chicago because we've had a number of payments like that here, that that money, some of which comes from an insurance company, but much of which comes from the budget of the city then is not available for other you know, services, especially uh, needed in some communities of color. I think what people what a family wants, obviously, uh, if they can't have their loved one back, is justice about a killing that might have been unjustified. And so I think there, the calls for reforms are important, reforms, policing reforms, but also possibly the arrest of these officers. This brings in the topic of sports teams. I know the WNBA is calling for the arrest of the officers who haven't been dismissed in the Breonna Taylor case. But I I think it's been interesting to see sports teams step up and be kind of the conscience of our nation and reach out to a number of people who might not otherwise be thinking about these issues. That word conscience is so important right now. And the pieces that have been put in place, so this $12 million settlement, that's significant. But there's also the question of justice. And I think that the family and a lot of people who have been following this case would say the money is one thing, but there's also the need to hold the system accountable. And for some reason, in the course of this conversation, I've been drawn back to a document from 1994 from the Conference of Catholic Bishops here in the U.S. called Confronting the Culture of Violence. And there's a particular line from it. It it says, not all violence is deadly. It begins with anger, intolerance, impatience, unfair judgments, and aggression. It is often reflected in our language, our entertainment, our driving, our competitive behavior. That speaks to what you were saying, Heidi, about sports teams and the way that we treat our environment. When I look at that quotation from this document, one of the things that I'm thinking about is that when we look at a lot of law enforcement agencies, what we're discovering in the process of close scrutiny is that these law enforcement agencies have cultures of violence. They are egging one another on to be less patient. They are, in some cases, even praising each other for being very quick-triggered, and their training becomes reactive and very quick-triggered. And so all of these things, I think, are contributing, and we have some language within the Catholic tradition to begin to look closely at not just the culture of the family, which this document is looking at, not just the culture of our schools or our general environment, but also cultural institutions like the police force. 
Yeah, I, I appreciate the highlighting of the violence as a cultural reality, too, because I think this is incredibly important. One of the things that's also worth noting, we talked about the kind of historic $12 million settlement between the city of Louisville and Breonna Taylor's family. One of the th- conditions of that, however, was that the city and the police force would not admit responsibility. They would not admit wrongdoing, which is a, a kind of go-to playbook rule, speaking of sports, that you see in all sorts of systemic injustices when you have structural evils like church abuse, you know, or abuse in the church, when you have its cover-up, oftentimes there'd be these settlements made, but there'd be no admission of wrongdoing. You see the same thing with the taking of unarmed black lives in, in the case of, for instance, of Breonna Taylor. But this point about the culture of violence is, is really telling because I think it runs deep. It's something that I think is heightened, you know, whether it's the role of implicit bias, whether it's the sort of narration and, and culture within the law enforcement community that that justifies the dehumanizing of certain populations, particularly populations in communities of color. But I'm reminded, you know, David, you, you quoted the 94 USCCB document. I'm reminded of a chapter in the great spiritual writer and Catholic priest Thomas Merton's 19, well, it was a later revision called New Seeds of Contemplation in 1961, where he has a chapter called The Root of All War is Fear. And he's not just talking about war is in like World War II or Vietnam. He's talking about exactly what the bishops say in 94 about violence. And the root of all violence is fear. And I believe that's, it's very important. It's an important Christian message as well. You know, there's a reason why Jesus says over and over again, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. And what we see play out, I think, is fear. And it's not a justifiable fear, you know, and people might think of the stand your ground law in Florida that was used to justify the exoneration of George Zimmerman and the the killing of Trayvon Martin many years back now. And it's not this kind of individualized fear. It's this deeply rooted systemic fear, fear of the loss of power, fear of the loss of social control, fear of it being wrong, you know, that Louisville could not admit as a society, as a government or as a police force that they did something wrong is so troubling to me. Since we're all sharing our favorite resources on nonviolence, I'll pipe in here too and say the Buddhist, Vietnamese Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh, his writings have really inspired me to look at violence in my own heart, in my own life, in my own family as an area that I can address even as I'm trying to address things in the broader culture and society. So I I highly recommend his writings And a good friend of Thomas Merton's, as it were, so small world. Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in there. And I think you know, this is the intersection, I think, as Catholics, especially as we're thinking about, you know, this this very divisive and polarized election season, both in society and in the church, where life issues are front and center. I think we're already naming many of the different trajectories that come together at the intersection of structural and systemic racism in our society and, and far less addressed within our church as well. And I think this fear, and like Heidi, like you were saying, whether through the inspiration of Thich Nhat Hanh or Thomas Merton or Dorothy Day or others who talk about confronting that violence, confronting that fear within ourselves, I think that sort of collective examination of conscience needs to take place. And the thing that troubles me, it's it's so upsetting. It's so, it's so I, there are no words to talk about the pain of this sort of destruction of life and the kind of wanton disregard. But beyond that, I think what pains me even more is 
the de facto cover-up, you know, to use an analogy again to sexual abuse in the Catholic Church and in other institutions, the fact that people don't want to address this, that we'd rather make excuses or write checks or look the other way or let the news cycle flip onto something else, to me that's unconscionable. And I think as people of faith, it's our responsibility to hold one another accountable, not only to do the introspection, but to do the kind of collective challenge as well. And with that, I think we need to end our segment because we have one more excellent topic to come back to after our break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dalt and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about a variety of issues, all from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. This month, most Catholics in Wisconsin will be required to return to in-person Mass, according to an announcement from the state's bishops. The dispensation from attending Sunday Mass, issued last March in response to the coronavirus pandemic, is being lifted now. Milwaukee Archbishop Jerome Listicki said Catholics who, quote, deliberately fail to attend Sunday Mass commit a grave sin, end quote. Listicki said Catholics could continue to miss in-person church services if they are at risk because of age, underlying medical conditions, or a com- compromised immune system, or to care for a sick person. But according to that archbishop, general fear of getting sick was no longer an acceptable reason to miss Mass. In the Green Bay Diocese, churches also will no longer have to restrict the number of people who can come to the services as long as churchgoers can maintain proper social distancing. Heidi, you're originally from the Badger State. What do you make of this move of trying to get back to normal? Yes, I am a Wisconsin native, and I I should note, too, that I have yet to attend an in-person Mass myself. But I really understand this desire to get back to normal in all areas of life, but especially in our communal celebrations of liturgy. We've been watching as a family a videoed Mass every Sunday, and it's not the same. I I get that. Uh, I miss the Eucharist. I miss the people from my parish. I miss a communal celebration. But I have concerns about this statement from the Wisconsin bishops. In the Just days after that statement came, we also had really disturbing reports coming out of Wisconsin about the rising number of cases there. And I keep an eye on this in part because I have family who live in Wisconsin, and I occasionally want to visit them and have to be careful because in the past, Wisconsin has been one of those states on the list for which Illinois residents would have to self-quarantine if they visited there. So just earlier this week, as we're taping, the New York Times compiled a list of 20 cities with the fastest increases of COVID-19 cases. So 20 cities where to sort of to watch where things are rising very quickly. Eight of those 20 cities are in Wisconsin. Oh, my gosh. And much of it is in cities where uh, branches of the University of Wisconsin are. So Madison and La Crosse, Green Bay, Platteville, places where students are coming together in universities where we're starting to see explosions of cases, even when the the, uh, coursework is being done virtually, the students are living in dorms. The University of Wisconsin at Madison just recently announced that they're going to be eliminating their spring break to avoid, so they're already planning ahead for spring. They're going to avoid students traveling out of state or going various places for spring break and then coming back. So I think we need to pay attention to the medical 
information out there and think about people's safety. That said, I'm going to say I I took my kids shoe shopping yesterday. My son literally has one pair of flip-flops that that fit him right now and I thought, well, I'm going to try taking him into a store to get a pair of shoes and I was horrified by how many people were in the store and how close they were coming to me and to other people. I had a mini panic attack while we were in the store. And it made me think, you know, I'd actually be safer in church where it seems, at least from the videos of my own home parish, people are maintaining social distancing and for a reason to celebrate the liturgy. Something that strikes me is that also just in the last couple of days as we're taping this, Attorney General Barr has made a statement that doctors should not be considered the final authorities on things like the pandemic and whether or not we should close or how facilities should be opened. And so the messaging that we're getting at all levels is a very confused and mixed set of messages. And we're being told by federal authorities that we shouldn't even listen to the doctors that you just told us to listen to, Heidi. And so I'm concerned because in a hierarchy of expertise on pandemics, I would put doctors and medical professionals near the top. I would not put bishops near the top, although I hold bishops in great respect. I think that bishops in cases like this, where there is a global pandemic going on, where there is so much that is still unknown about all of the factors of the global pandemic, that bishops should be exercising caution and the general good, we should defer to the kind of general common good of keeping people as healthy as possible, which might mean keeping things shut down for a little longer or for a lot longer. I'm frankly just utterly dumbfounded as to why a bishop would insist that opening is the right thing to do right now in the first place. And I'm wondering if either of you have a sense of why that's the case. Our second collection this week will be for the Archdiocese of Milwaukee's COVID-19 Relief Fund. That's why. I mean, that's the cynical answer. And I don't mean to make light of the fact that people's livelihoods, those who are ministers in the church, the ordained lay ministers, professionals, bookkeepers, accountants, there are a lot of people who depend on the donations, at least in the U.S. context, we the, the churches are supported by their congregations. And so, I mean, there's a cynical side of this, and that's why I began with that little bit of a joke. But in all truthfulness, I think money is a, is a very strong factor here. And it's hard to balance a, a series of goods. I mean, this is, like Heidi said, I think there are also genuine, there's a genuine desire on the part of both bishops and priests and lay ministers and others and the general congregation to get back to a sense of normalcy, to worship. People miss the celebration of the liturgy. They miss their parish. They miss the Eucharist, I mean, in in a tangible sense. And so I'm sympathetic, too, to that. The thing that makes me a little bit concerned, though, is the way that some of the reasoning is being deployed. And I think that if it truly were a financial motivation, which is disproportionately informing some of these, I would say, reckless decisions or, or uh, processes, then I think, you know, dioceses would be wise to state that from the outset and solicit donations or solicit assistance and, and not play games. And I'll give you an example, and this is my interpretation of something that as we were recording last Thursday, there was an op-ed piece that came out by the Archbishop of San Francisco in the Washington Post, where he's claiming an invasion or an infringement on religious liberty because people in San Francisco are not allowed to gather for regular church services. And he names a couple other states in which there are very strict ordinances as well. 
I have no patience for this kind of BS. I'm just going to be direct about it. Absolutely none. The Catholic bishops in the United States have been a little too chicken little about the sky is falling when it comes to religious liberty, and it is incredibly dangerous. They are the bishops who cried wolf about religious liberty, and it starts with Archbishop Laurie and his confreres back during the Affordable Care Act process in 2009-2010, when they were decrying infringement of religious liberty on Catholics because of certain mandates that would require employers to provide artificial birth control and certain other medical accesses and coverage and this kind of stuff. It's the same sort of playbook again, and it harkens back to the beginning of the pandemic when First Things uh, editor Rusty Reno was playing similar games, decrying religious liberty as being infringed. And I'm with you, David, 100%. You got to put the medical experts first. Well, I agree with you, Dan, that we should be concerned with some of the leaders who are calling for going back to in-person mass for possible ideological reasons. And I don't know Archbishop Cordelioni's heart, but I have some suspicions there when it's framed as a religious liberty issue. And you know, it becomes part of this storyline from the right that Christians or Catholics are this heavily persecuted group in the United States. I don't know if the real reason is financial. And and I, I take to heart your directive that maybe we could just be honest about that. But I think in addition to the finances, there are concerns, and justifiably so, that once people get used to not going to Mass, that they're not going to come back. And we already were seeing a decline in mass attendance before the pandemic, especially among young people, uh, disaffiliation from institutional religion. I know America Magazine ran a story about a, a recent CARA poll that said a number, like 36% of young Catholics said they plan to attend mass less frequently after the stay-at-home orders are, are lifted after COVID-19. Now, 51% did say they, they plan to go back as normal, So that, but that's half. And so there's a concern about something that is so central to our practice of the faith, uh, Sunday weekly mass attendance declining in such a way that, that something might look different. Now, that same poll found that people were still doing spiritual practices at home, which I think is encouraging and maybe things will evolve. But I think for an institutional church, there is that concern. Well, you know, I, I think that's a really insightful observation because it reminds me of something that I talked about in a lecture I gave at Emory University a couple of weeks back when talking about clericalism, the role of leadership of the laity in the church and so forth. And one of the things I pointed out as a potential silver lining is precisely what I think some bishops are afraid of, which is what will the general faithful, the general population, the congregation expect now? And is this not an opportunity not just to return to a status quo, which I think you're right. I mean, you didn't use this language. I'll put it in my own words. But I think there are some church leaders who are afraid that the laity in particular are doing some examination of conscience and evaluation of priorities and asking themselves, okay, it's been the better part of a year. Do I want to go back to the way things were? Are there problems with this? And the answer is there are problems with the way things have been going. Clericalism is one of them. I'd also say that, again, (laughs) second time in one episode, Holy Spirit atheism, if we believe in the working of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and and minds of the faithful, then I think, like you said, Heidi, and is reflected in that poll that America Magazine referred to, then I think there is a desire for spiritual connection and liturgical celebration and communal worship deep in the hearts of, of the faithful. The question is, are they finding that 
nourished and fulfilled in the kind of routinized or sort of obligatory model that I think a lot of these bishops are used to. They want to get the people back in the pews because habitually that's how you keep them in the pews. And frankly, my response is that's not the right motivation. Yeah. And I'll just add as a a member of a parish that's currently undergoing the parish reorganization process here in the Archdiocese of Chicago, it doesn't help when you're facing the possibility of your parish being closed or merged or otherwise reorganized. David, what do you think it's going to look like after COVID? Are people going to go back and do these rushes to get back to Mass? How do they affect you? My family and and I are in conversations around this issue, but also larger issues, because we have felt disenfranchised in some ways from Catholicism because of some of the politicization of Catholicism towards the right and in favor of some of the uh, practices of the Trump administration. And so this is part of a larger context of what things are going to look like for us after things go back to normal. And I'm scare quoting here, things go back, things going back to normal. But I want to pivot from your question, Heidi, to a different kind of but related question, and that is the way in which a lot of Catholic laypersons approach bishops with the same kind of cafeteria style that sometimes people are accused of, you know, mixing and matching. As Dan has pointed out, as as I have pointed out occasionally on Twitter, you are bound to follow the bishop of your see. In other words, if you're in a diocese, the authority that you follow is the visible bishop of that diocese. As a member of the Chicago Archdiocese, I am not bound to follow Bishop Listecki's pronouncements on any of these subjects. That being said, I am aware that a lot of my Catholic brothers and sisters will look around for the bishop that speaks most closely to the desires that they have, and they will utilize that bishop as some kind of remote authority. And I think that that is a problem coming out of COVID and perpetually that needs to be addressed, and that I think in addition to Dan talking about the right motivation for people going back to be in face-to-face worship when all this is over, I think that we also need to be looking closely at the motivations of people who are wanting very much to shop for either the most liberal or the most conservative bishop that they can find because it speaks to their discernment of things at the moment. Yeah, I wrote a column about it this week in some ways. I mean, uh, just a little another shout out to NCR. So as this episode drops, it'll be last week. But David, I think you're exactly right. That's that's a perennial problem. And it's only gotten worse in this political climate as we look at a general election. And I think it's been sort of souped up because of the pandemic and everybody's reliance on social media and the internet to get everything from shopping to entertainment to school to worship. And and I don't know entirely what the solution is, but you're exactly right for our listeners. There's there's a sense in which I feel sorry for the people of the Church of San Francisco and of Wisconsin and of uh, you know, Wisconsin churches and so forth. But I don't think this is going to be the last for all the reasons we've named. And I think this is a tricky thing. It's an ongoing subject that we're going to have to continue to talk about. I think we'll be circling back to. I agree. And this is probably a good time to leave this conversation and wrap up the show. But I just want to thank both of you, Heidi and Dan, again, for being with me today. And thanks for this conversation. It's been really good. David, no. Thank you. (laughs) Have a great week, guys. Have a good one, Heidi.
The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We record the show remotely at various locations around the Chicago area. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any of the institutions with which we might be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. And if you're here for the first time, welcome. We now have six full seasons of episodes that you can go back and explore. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much for listening.